Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Chaminade University, committed to educating the next generation of leaders in Hawaii with its MBA and one-year MBA programs. Learn more at chaminade.edu. You are listening to The Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, this week and next, we are connecting with the mayors across the state. We talked to bigger than Mayor Mitch Roth earlier in the week. And yesterday afternoon, we caught up with Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami. he just come back from distributing test kits in the community. We appreciate being able to check in regularly with the mayors during these difficult times as we all look for things to help us cope with the stress of so much uncertainty. Here's Mayor Kawakami. So, Mayor, early on in the pandemic, when I talked to you, let's see, you were making a splash on TikTok. (laughs) And you're going to have to raise your game because Governor Ige just did a thing over at Blue Note with Jake Shimabukuro. Oh, I have a lot of, like, videos lined up. But, you know, it's social media. It's, um, I think it's good if we all take a break from it once in a while. You know, it's sort of like a rabbit hole. I think if you don't detach yourself from time to time, it easily consumes way too much of your time. And lately, I just don't have time. So I'll get back on it now that I know Governor Ige is giving me some some competition. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> I don't know. That's pretty good. Jake Shimabukuro. <laughs> I know. I cannot, I cannot top that. But. <laughs> well, so, you know, we all need to, to disengage every now and then. It is kind of crazy the way the world is going with Ukraine and all and, and the gas prices. But Kauai seems to be in a good spot, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, green energy. Yeah, you know, we're lucky. You know, our utility model is really different from the rest of the state. It's member-owned, so it's governed locally. Our board of directors are all neighbors. They live here. They have grandkids. They have kids of their own and not profit-driven. Everything that's above and beyond gets returned to the members in the form of patronage capital. So I think, in a sense, it's more close to home. And so I think the utility's ability to pivot in the direction that it has is in part because we have a great board, we have a great operation, the engineers and leadership at KIEC has been very forward-thinking, and I think we're starting to see the fruits of that labor. Well, we just talked to your counterpart over there on the Big Island, Mayor Mitch Roth, you know, in his bold idea, asking the governor to declare uh, an energy emergency so that they can fast-track some of the green energy projects. Would you agree with him or disagree with him about an energy crisis? Well, I think we are in an energy emergency. I mean, anytime we're geographically isolated and if we're not self-reliant, we're exposed. There's vulnerabilities, and I don't think Mayor Roth is wrong, but I do think that there is a level of complexity with some of these large utility-scale renewable energy projects. One, they have to be permitted correctly, but two, There's purchase power agreements that have to be negotiated between the renewable energy company and the utility itself to make sure that ratepayers are getting a fair shake at it. And I'm not too inclined to know the level of complexity with some of these purchase power agreements, but it does seem to be rather complicated. I do think that we should go for low-hanging fruit, and what that means is Oftentimes, if we just focus on conservation, if we're using less energy, of course, it impacts us less in our wallet. And having the ability for the utility to do energy audits at bigger companies or even in individual households or multifamily sort of living arrangements goes a long way. We often, at the utility, at the co-op, 
we remind people that before you stick a whole bunch of photovoltaic cells on your rooftop, make sure that you're not overbuilding and make sure that you take the first step to change out your light bulbs, see if you have energy efficient appliances, and so on and so forth to really right-size the system. So I think Mayoroth's not wrong, but I do know there's a level of complexity with getting these larger utility-scaled renewable energy projects online. You know, as we get through the Ukraine crisis and, you know, we're shifting with this pandemic, how is Kauai sitting with everything being relaxed and the tourists coming back? Well, it's good for economic recovery, and I think it's just good for the community's morale. We just got back from some test distributions. We have free at-home test kits that were provided by our district health office under the Department of Health. So as often, you know, Kauai, we find a way to, to chip in where we can. So we had some of our parks and recreation workers out at the neighborhood centers. And the one thing that's evident is there's far less demand for these in-home tests, and that could be because some federal tests were mailed out to a lot of people. But I think, in a sense, people are getting more acclimated to coexisting with this new virus. People are seemingly doing the right thing. I know one of the big questions that I heard today were many of our elderly kupuna asking about this fourth dose of vaccine to stay up to date. And we're still waiting for guidance on how that fourth dose is going to be administered. Just being a layman that's not a health expert, I would just recommend people talk to the people they trust with their health, which is usually their physician, on what's right for them. I did see something recently that said that the wastewater studies there on Kauai detected a new variant. Well, you know, the nature of a coronavirus is that it mutates. It's not uncommon for these type of new variants or subvariants to occur as long as it's trending in the direction where it's less fatal, less severe. If it's more contagious, that could be not necessarily the worst thing in the world. We get really concerned when it starts to take a turn for more contagious, more severe, more fatal. And I don't think we're heading in that direction with this new subvariant. but like everything else, we constantly just try to keep an eye on things. I just had a conversation with Jen Chanovich at Wilcox Hospital yesterday. As of yesterday, the hospital was in a great position. No COVID-19 patients as of yesterday that were in their hospital. They keep us up to date regularly. And so I have a high level of confidence and optimism that we have the right people scanning the horizon for anything that would be unusual and concerning. Hopefully we'll be able to manage then. I think we will. You know, Kauai County, we really took some very bold moves early on before the vaccine became available. That was really our strategy was to get as much of our vulnerable population and essential workers vaccinated before we opened up. And we went through Delta. We went through Omicron without adding restrictions. And we were able to weather both of those storms fairly well. Of course, one loss of life is, you know, to a family, it's devastating. And we hope to avoid that. But I think that our community is doing the right thing. You know, I still see a lot of people wearing masks indoors. I just went to a local grocery store yesterday, walked up without a mask and looked in, saw everybody wearing a mask. So guess what I did? Put my mask on. And really, that's what it's about. It's just about being courteous, right? You wouldn't walk into somebody's house with your shoes on. And I tell tourists all the time that if they want to go along to get along, they should do what I do when I travel. I watch what the locals do. I walk where they walk. I wait in line. I wait patiently. I try to mimic the behavior of the people that are actually from that place. 
just so I don't stick out, but more so, it's just respectful, right? I mean, respect is such a huge thing on Kauai and Hawaii in general. You talk about tourists. The last time we chatted, uh, I knew you were concerned about having to collect the hotel room tax. We're collecting it (laughs) and we're doing good. You know, it is very labor intensive because we had to figure it out on our own. So this is a new endeavor for our finance department. But, you know, our finance director, Reiko Matsuyama, she's a go-getter. She figured it out and she herself is oftentimes on the phone walking some of the hotels and resorts through the process and she's you know personally making phone calls because for our taxpayers that are paying the TAT this is a new initiative as well so we take into account that there is a learning curve and we just ask everybody just to work with our office and seem to be going fine we're able to utilize that TAT and fill in a puka in the budget that would have been huge if we weren't able to collect it. So are you uh, on target to make what you need to make? Oh, yes, we are. I think in general, the state and the county of Kauai, we weren't forecasting the revenue that we're bringing in now. And so with the increased amount of visitors coming in, of course, for our mom and pops and our businesses and our hotel industry, it's a good sign. And it's a reminder to everyone that everything that we spend as far as county and government services, whether it's your public schools or roads, bridge repairs, wastewater systems, the bus, they're all in part due to a healthy visitor industry economy happening. And so it's good to see our businesses being able to bounce back. That was Kwai Mayor Derek Kawakami talking to us from the Garden Isle. Later this week, we plan to hear from Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi. Support for HPR comes from Evergreen by Deborah, providing tile, mosaic murals, and planters for more than 25 years. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about hydroflow permeable pavers designed to absorb rainwater and reduce runoff. On the Longview today, our contributing analyst Neil Milner looks at the U.S. response to COVID. Uh, what we did right or what we did wrong. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. So, what's your assessment? Well, it's based on a nice piece about the data and the problems with data done by a person named Beth Ladenzess. It's in 538.com. She was a, a COVID tracker, not for the government, for one of those organizations like Johns Hopkins that became the dominant COVID tracker uh, in the United States with much better information than CDC. And of course, that's part of the issue. So here's the deal. Two years before the uh, epidemic hit, our global health index had us as one of the top countries prepared for a pandemic. And not only were we prepared, we did a lot worse than some other countries. And she looks at what the situation was. We're at a low off, but it's a low between a really big storm and a likely, if not this pandemic again, which we will likely have, but pandemics in the future. And here's a way to think about what a good system would like would look like, a good system for tracking and communication and developing a sense of certainty. It would be like the national weather forecasting system. You think about the national weather forecasting system, mostly we have a way that's rich with data that tells people what the weather is likely to be each day. It's dependable. It tells you something about probabilities when it's 60% chance of rain. They tell you it's 60% chance of rain. It's not very political, and, and, it's a, it's a, and, and the communication is pretty straightforward and easy. There's never questions about transparency. 
it would be nice if that was the model that was put into place for the way that we deal with a pandemic. And it clearly hasn't been. You can see various things that were that have been wrong that have kept it from being that way. Some the fault of the CDC, some the fact that that, you, that COVID is such a fast moving thing, and that science changes as time goes on, and it, it gets more complicated. And some because of factors that are very, very unlikely to change in any dramatic way in the next few years. Well, COVID did move fast. And there was a lot we didn't know at the time. That's right. There's a lot we didn't know. And that is something that we were less responsible for in some ways and more responsible for in another. If you remember, one of the problems in the early days was finding out information because we didn't get information fast enough from the CDC. We couldn't get tests fast enough, partly because government didn't have them, but also because the CDC had that rule that they wouldn't use tests that were approved by the World Health Organization, that they would develop their own tests here. And by now, most of you probably know what happened. It took a while to develop the tests, and they were problems. The tests were not accurate. That's what happened in Hawaii, and then there was a delay. So yeah, the thing was moving fast, but if you're in the pandemic communication and treatment business, you have to be prepared for that. That was one way that the speed could have been not mitigated, but could have gotten a better information. Then we had all sorts of problems with measurement and data all through the whole process. And that's the area that's really maybe, at least from the data perspective, is, is a really significant problem. And you can start with the fact that we don't have a public health system. What we have is a series of systems called state and local public health agencies, which are fragmented, uh, which are understaffed, and which don't report data in the same way as another one might report data. So just getting the number of COVID cases from the states looking at them and defining them the same way was a real problem. Yeah, we saw that with uh, our Department of Health here, where I think even at one time we were questioning, why is it that you say this and that the CDC is reporting a different number? Uh, You know, they were quick, they were slow to respond, you know, in dealing with getting messaging out for the uh, various Pacific Islander communities because they didn't have a good in-house system to reach out Well, it it turns out that the problem was broader than that, that the data you were getting for long periods of time was just basically some kind of case numbers, which also weren't necessarily accurate because hospitalization data was not always the best way to measure a COVID thing. But what you were not getting was the data broken down by categories like race, like ethnicity, like what kind of workers were getting it. And so that was a problem for a while, just, just seeing where that was, r- racial stuff began to come out about it. But the other thing it turns out is that the CDC had a lot of this data which and had actually analyzed it, which is surprising the heck out of a lot of medical and public health officials who said we had no idea. CDC's response to that was that the data wasn't ready for prime time. That's one thing that they say. Like you know, these kind of more refined measures, like what kinds of workers were getting it? Is it just health? Is it location? The second thing is CDC was reluctant to release some of this information uh, 
particularly when it got related to uh, vaccines and so on, because they were afraid it would be misinterpreted by anti-vaxxers. A lot of the critics of CDC on this thing say, you know what, you have to learn that the risk of that sort of thing is not as great as the risk of not being transparent. So that's something that is that, that was a real problem. It really hurt the legitimacy of the CDC. But the more important thing that it did is that the data was there, but not necessarily accessible. And one of the reasons it wasn't accessible is that the CDC, and they may have been right here, is that it wasn't good enough data to, to release. So if you translate that into plain English, we always had a sense of, you mentioned the Pacific Island communities, we always were concerned about those subcategories and how, what kind of information was out there. But there was a lot more of that information that could have been useful if it had been put in reasonably good form and if the CDC had decided to release it. And, you know, now they're requiring uh, cities uh, to do wastewater uh, surveillance. And, you know, early on, locally here, this Honolulu, the city tried to, to get data from the health department. And because of privacy issues, uh, they were reluctant to release that info. But you know, now they're well, in the process. Re- yeah, I know. And that's really bogus because let's let's not get too graphic here, but it's pretty hard to tell from wastewater uh, analysis which person did what into the wastewater. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, in fact, wastewater uh, analysis is considered one of the bright spots, and it's going to be used a lot more because it doesn't have as many ethical issues. Remember that our health department was falling back a lot on privacy and health issues when they were getting criticized. Um, and that they were not always strong arguments. But the argument is now that wastewater analysis is a good way to tell in advance what the, situ- the COVID situation is like. Well. For example, <clears throat> that the, this new variant is increasing. One of the ways to see what the level of this variant is is to test race- wastewater. It's not a, it's not a le- legal or ethical problem. The other thing is that if you combine that with hospitalization data, you get a pretty, you get a more accurate picture of how serious the problem is. Well, we have far to go on uh, these areas. And, uh, you know, I guess the real test will be when the next pandemic comes around. But hopefully our country will have addressed some of these issues. When you say the the next test would be, remember when you were in college and you were supposed to prepare for the test? It's not all that clear that that's that we're at a stage there that that all of the issues that have to be taken care of are going to be taken care of as much because of the lack of of a public health system and also because CDC as a manager is not just a scientific body it's also a political body so we better bone up because you might have a pop quiz (laughs) pretty quick with Omicron (laughs) I'm going to drop the course okay all right well thanks so much Neil yeah take care We've been talking to Neil Milner, our contributing editor, for a segment we call The Long View. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the exhibit Treasures of Devotion, Human Connection in Secular and Sacred Art, featuring works from the museum's permanent collection, honolulumuseum.org. 
Joining us for today's reality check is Civil Beat reporter Joel Lau with more on the FDA decision to okay a fourth COVID booster shot. Good morning, Joel. Good morning, Catherine. So yeah, I know you know we did hear you know the headlines earlier this week, and then what the health department also came out with a, a statement on this. Yes, yes, this is still very uh, breaking news. Um, as of yesterday, both the FDA and the CDC have changed their recommendations and approved a second booster of both the Moderna and Pfizer for people over 50 and people who are immunocompromised. Uh, only these two groups, so it's not a blanket okay for the rest of the population, but for people over 50 and people who are immunocompromised, you can get your second booster as of the FDA and the CDC. I know my friends who heard the headlines were like, oh, I wonder if I should get a Moderna now that I've had, you know, Pfizer shots uh, and vice versa. So, you know, if people are, are, you know, already starting to wonder, okay, where, where do I, uh, where do I go? How do I do this? Yeah, yeah. There's some evidence that uh, mixing and matching different vaccines, so mixing the Pfizer and the Moderna, since both are mRNA vaccines anyway, might increase uh, some sort of immunity, but, you know, it's still very spotty. There's not really a scientific consensus on whether or not that works better, but it's not, it doesn't lead to worse outcomes, essentially, if you choose to stick with Pfizer all the way or if you choose to mix and match. But yeah, a whole bunch of people are definitely now trying to figure out how to get the vaccine, uh, the second booster, especially because it's still very new um, and a whole bunch of providers are still trying to figure out how they're going to begin, you know, administering second boosters. Yeah, I just jumped online to my provider, but they hadn't released any guidance yet. So yeah, just got to wait and see because I'm due yeah. for my next one. Mm-hmm. It's still very new. So uh, there's the, it does seem that people are having some luck uh, with Walgreens. Uh, Walgreens did release a statement or did say that they're allowing people to walk in uh, to get their second booster through Friday. And then on Friday, that's when they anticipate they'll allow people to actually start signing up in advance for the second booster. Uh, but again, I recommend people contact their local pharmacy or local health provider to see their specific policy for the second booster because everybody has their own uh, different set of guidelines for that. And the other thing that uh, uh, came out this week is that the um, that new Omicron variant is now the leading uh, variant in the U.S. Yes, yes. It's actually, it, it, it's pretty wary- worrying, I'm not going to lie, um, that, uh, you know, we've seen surges uh, because of the new subvariant, which is called BA2, Omicron subvariant BA2. We've seen surges of that in Europe. And, you know, surges in Europe have often acted as harbing- harbingers, uh, predictors for uh, future surges in America. Uh, yeah, and CDC data released yesterday has confirmed that BA2 is now the dominant variant in the U.S. It's causing 55% of new infections nationwide, 60% of new infections uh, in Hawaii's region, so Hawaii, California, Arizona, Nevada, all of those. Um, and then uh, the state also released their new variant report, I think, late yesterday, which is estimating that 40% of new cases in Hawaii are being caused by BA2, uh, this Omicron subvariant. Okay, so that's just uh, real new information then. Yes, yes, very hot off the presses, 40% Hawaii-wide and then 42% specifically in Honolulu. Uh, they're estimating uh, new infections are being caused by BA2. Yeah, and then uh, today is Wednesday, which is the uh, uh, time when uh, the Department of Health has decided, you know, it's going to release its COVID numbers, right, just once a week instead of daily numbers that we were doing earlier on. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once a week instead of daily. I'm actually not sure if we see uh, coming if we see a new surge in cases if they will go back to daily reporting. Um, this uh, switch to weekly reporting was definitely fueled by uh, our return to pre-surge levels after the Omicron surge kind of died out. But yeah, we'll see if they return to daily reporting if we do see a future surge because of BA two. All right. Okay. Lots to keep track of. But thanks so much, Joe. Yes, thank you so much. Definitely. It's, 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 it's up and downs, up and downs, but we'll definitely keep track of it. All right. We have been talking with Joel Lau for today's Reality Check. To read his full story, go to civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Opera Theater, presenting Madame Butterfly. And Namba designs a visual transformation of Chocho-san as she faces her abandonment in this Puccini classic, opening April 8th at the Blaisdell. HawaiiOpera.org. Time now to do a little fill-in-the-blank question. <laughs> white-tailed tropic birds are best known for their, you guessed it, white-tail feathers. They can be found throughout oceans in the right again, tropics, and they are the subject of today's Manu Minute. We've got their calls thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's Patrick Hart. White-tailed tropic birds, or kua'ekea, are possibly the most distinctive seabirds we might commonly see on the main Hawaiian islands. Bright white with striking black bars across the top of their wings, They have two long, streaming tail feathers that sets them apart from all other birds. These feathers are found on both males and females and are mostly used for displays as they don't seem to help at all for flight. As their English name suggests, Kauaikea are found only in tropical oceans worldwide. The ones that live in Hawaii will often fly hundreds of miles out to sea to find food and, unlike other seabirds, prefer to mostly forage alone or in small groups. They're known for their spectacular plunge dives from high altitudes into the water to capture small fish and squid, and they can even catch flying fish in flight. Their calls have been described as harsh, raspy, and less than pleasant, though I'm not so sure I agree. But see what you think. On the main Hawaiian islands, Kauaikea are most often seen and heard as they gracefully soar near rocky cliff faces. They nest mostly in crevices and cavities in inaccessible cliffs or crater walls. Because of this, they're very hard to study, but we do know that they generally lay just a single egg each spring following a brief but affectionate aerial courting display. And if nesting is successful, the chick leaves the nest and is on its own about four months later. The long tail feathers of Kauaikea have been used in featherwork in Hawaii and around the world. Their populations seem to be relatively stable, but they're very susceptible to increasing levels of marine plastic that's making its way into their food. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. 
Today happens to be National Doctors' Day, and it's nearly the end of Women's History Month. So we hanaho the story of obstetrician Dr. Kong Tai Hyung. She's credited as the first Chinese woman to practice Western medicine in the islands after arriving in Honolulu from China with her husband in 1896. Dr. Kong also counseled expectant mothers for over 50 years. In 1946, she was featured in Ripley's Believe It or Not, for having delivered over 6,000 babies. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Dr. Kong's great-granddaughter, Louise Ng, to learn more about Kong's lasting legacy. My grandmother on my mother's side, Mary Lee Sia, is one of Dr. Kong's daughters, and I think she's one of the older kids. So she helped take care. Maybe that's how Dr. Kong managed, too. I think her older children helped take care of the younger ones. She had nine children, but eight living. That's right. There was at least one baby that didn't survive, mm. maybe two. Pretty amazing to think that here she was going to work and having kids to raise at the same time and probably being one of the very few women doctors who were delivering babies at the time. Maybe that's why she was in such demand. Is there a story about great-grandmother that you find very riveting or you would like to share with listeners? Hmm. Well, you know, I am most intrigued by the way that she and my great-grandfather met. And, of course, that's a story handed down. But they were both medical students at Canton Medical School. And the way my great-grandmother got there was she was apparently a basket baby. She was left at the steps of the orphanage that was run by Lutheran sisters. As she grew up and was schooled there, she took the exams and passed at age 13 or 14 was able to qualify to go to Canton Medical School. And then the other neat thing that I learned just recently is that she was assigned a big sister at Canton Medical School. And I can't imagine there were very many big sister medical students there. But it was the big sister's son who ended up being the man that she married. Your great-grandfather. My great-grandfather, yes. Wow. And how was it that they'd come to Hawaii? Well, I'm learning this secondhand, and actually one of my source materials is a book called Life is for a Long Time that one of my grand-aunts wrote. Her name is Gladys Lee or Leeling Ai. She talks about the fact that my great-grandfather was from a very long line of you know scholars, and so he was expected to marry and arrange marriage to the proper family. But he had met my great-grandmother and decided that she was the one he wanted to marry. And then he worried about, well, how could we have a life in China when society has so many expectations? And so with the consultation of his mother, he decided that after getting married that the young couple would go almost immediately to Hawaii and work for an uncle of his who already had a business there. So they went over to Hawaii as laborers because that was the only way you could immigrate as a Chinese person, even though they were trained medical doctors. And so it was another story, too, that eventually led them to get their licenses. Hmm. And that story is another story that I think our listeners really need to know about. Yeah, I thought that was a wonderful story, too, because it showed that you can get the help of many people from many walks of life and races and stations to help you along the way. I think it was my great-grandmother who screwed up the courage to go visit the missionary family of Frank Damon, who's the ancestor of the late Frank Damon, who was a founding law partner in a law firm here. 
she went and asked for help getting her husband and herself licensed as doctors. And I suspect she probably spoke at that time little or no English, but the Damons had been missionaries in China, so were very sympathetic and knowledgeable about the Chinese people. He helped them both get an interview with then-President Sanford Dole, and through his offices, they were able to get a meeting before the Board of Examiners that handed out medical licenses and were given the choice of either doing a long written exam or doing a rather taxing oral exam, being examined by a board, you know, and having three minutes to answer something. With the help of the translator, they opted to do the orals, and they passed. And that really just speaks to her ability. So she had been already trained back in Canton. She had gone through medical school. She wasn't going to let language be a barrier. So even though she came to Hawaii under the status of laborer, she really had a different skill set that she knew she could really bring. Yes, indeed. And so it sounded like initially my great-grandfather did work as a laborer to sort of pay off his debt to his uncle. So it took some time, but ultimately, through persistence, they did get their licenses. In some of the readings I did, it would say that she would still go to work with one baby under the arm. (laughs) And she was remembered for personally going door to door to treat patients. And she delivered more than 6,000 babies of all races across Oahu. That's just an amazing thing. It is amazing. And the really neat thing I found out shortly after I met my husband is that one of those babies she delivered was my future mother-in-law. And my future mother-in-law had many siblings, so it could very well be that all or most of those siblings were delivered by her, too. That's a great family story and totally underscores the reach that your great-grandmother had in the community. Back in 1896, your great-grandparents opened Yin Hospital in Palama. I had no idea it existed, but the first Chinese hospital in Hawaii. And they also acquired 15 acres in Palolo Valley that we know today as the Palolo Chinese home. So as a descendant, as somebody who, you know, whose legacy really is from this, this groundbreaking trailblazer who crossed oceans and made it to Hawaii... What is it like for you to realize that this is the legacy that you have? Well, it makes me proud and also gives meaning to what I always say, which is that we do stand on the shoulders of the prior generations, even as we might rebel or the younger generations might rebel. We really have to thank those who came before. And of course, those of us who are here in Hawaii have to thank our ancestors who made the big decision to leave their life and come to a new land and make a life here. And You know, as families, I think we often don't appreciate our family histories. And it's a good reminder that we need to talk to our older relatives and get their stories before it's too late. And I'm still wanting to learn and ask questions and also pass on that information. But it makes me feel like, okay, you know, I have roots. Maybe that's where some of our determination came from. It also gives inspiration for just carrying on good family values. And in your generation for you, you chose to go into law. Yeah, so I became a lawyer. And in the face of, you know, I think we had a history of doctors in the families, not a whole lot of immediate relatives, only an uncle who were lawyers. And so it was kind of, for me, a different path to take. My dad was a business person and really believed that that was the way to go. 
So it, it was taking a different path. But actually, I was interested then in reading my grand-aunt's book and learning that the family name Lee means law. I thought, well, hey, maybe back there in the genes, there was a drive to um, gain knowledge and pursue justice. So, <laughs> mm, Right. Also in the family tree, though, that grand-aunt, she was a filmmaker? She was an entertainer? Yeah, she was, you know, she was quite a colorful character. And actually, we have to give my grand-aunt Lingai credit for the whole story about you know my great-grandmother delivering 6,000 babies because Lingai, when she moved to New York and lived the life of a bohemian, I can imagine, became friends with Mr. Ripley of Ripley's Believe It or Not. And so she was the one who kind of tipped him off to that story. And apparently it actually got printed in you know the Ripley's Believe It or Not that we I used to see on the cartoon pages. Mm-hmm. I think it's very fitting, and I thank you for featuring my great-grandmother because I think storytelling and learning our history of our families as well as our communities and country is very important, and highlighting the role of women, which oftentimes gets overlooked. It's just important for just sort of inspiring the rest of us and maybe giving us some perspective on our family history and why it's important to do the things that we're doing. So thank you for all the women in our lives who have really inspired us and helped us to be where we are. And that was attorney Louise Ng reflecting on her family's trailblazing matriarch, Dr. Kong Tae-hyung, the first Chinese woman to practice Western medicine here in the islands. She passed away in 1951 at the age of 76. Several of her grandchildren and great-grandchildren are practicing doctors. And that uh, winds it up for us today, but tomorrow a local comedian shares his perspective on the shocking incident at Sunday night's Oscar ceremony. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance, committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org.